there's a different pace in the natural world. You know, when you're out there hiking for so long, you're seeing the change in seasons. You're seeing how this affects, you know, the, the flow in the river. Like during springtime, the rivers are swollen. And then during the summers, they go down to a trickle. Um, sometimes you see them frozen. You're just seeing, you're just experiencing life at a different pace. That might change the pace of your mind. It might change uh, the types of thoughts you end up having. You might be able to see things from a different angle. Welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm Erin Egan, excited to bring you a new episode. And this is the podcast where I talk to experienced through hikers about their adventures on the trail and strategies for successfully completing a through hike. Today's guest is Bibi, known off trail as Nathan Hankus. He came back from Iraq, heart set on through hiking. Convincing his brother to join him, they subbed the AT in 2009, from which sprang his book, Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail. In this episode, we talk about how the trail helped him process his experiences in Iraq the dichotomy of being a slave to the miles versus taking breaks to be present, and the importance of finding your nutritional sweet spot. You can find this episode and all previous episodes at hiking-through.com, where you can also find show notes, photos, and links for any gear mentioned in this podcast. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with BB. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, thank you. And and welcome to uh, the Hiking Through Podcast. It's great to be here. So I just, I finished your book last night. And you did. I, I got to say, there were any number of times when I would have said, you know what, I think maybe I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. And I'm sure you're you're realizing that as you have all these conversations. What oh. I think is interesting about your program is you have yet to do a through hike. But you aspire to, correct? I aspire to. Well, I aspire to do it this year, and then we know what happened. Yeah, that's. Um, I can only imagine that's a lot of dashed dreams and hopes for folks. Yeah, I I finally officially called it for myself. Really? In this last week, and so Friday yesterday, I was packing everything up and storing it away, and it was kind of sad. It is, and you were going to do the PCT. I was going to do the PCT. Yeah. It's hardcore to start. They say like the the Appalachian Trail is like a good beginner one because it's there's a little more amenities, um, might be a little safer in comparison. It's not as remote. You're more likely to to see people on a daily basis, and you've got shelters if you need them, and you're closer to civilization. All of those things I've heard are true. However, I've also heard the flip side of that, which is that it's also very brutal on your body just the type of hiking that it is is it true that the pct is graded for pack animals so it's not as steep it is okay (laughs) yeah it is well yeah and also some people everything i described about the appalachian trail some people might dislike that say no i want to be more remote i want to be away from humans which there's value in that as well yeah well, and I guess this would have been the year to be really, really away from humans because there's not going to be that many people out there. 
Yeah, the challenge would be hitchhiking. You know, who's yeah. unless someone has a pickup truck, or I guess there's parts of the country that aren't too concerned about this, or they just uh, aren't uh, buying it or whatever. Yeah, uh, or they might might be fine with that sort of stuff, but you you don't want to you don't want to push the limits on things we don't fully understand. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because I was also thinking about it from a different perspective, which is that, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that that when you're hiking during hiking season on these trails, there's generally a lot of people hiking. So even if you're not hiking with a, a, a group, you're hiking in a bubble of people. And so if something were to happen and you just you stop and you're on the trail, there's likely that somebody will come by within the next 24 hours or so. Okay. And this year, because of the way everything's going down and because of how few people are actually on the trails, that's probably not the case this year. And that honestly did give me some pause, just knowing how delicate my body can be in terms of injury right now. You know what I mean? Right. And it, it is also probably one of the factors. Actually, it is one of the factors that, that caused me to go, you know what, I'm not even I'm not going to chance it this year. Have you been training or what's been your protocol? Uh, I have, I have been training. I, I have been walking, not necessarily hiking, um, since I'm in the middle of the city right now, but, uh, I have been walking and walking with a pack, walking with a heavy pack, which, uh, certainly helped to make me aware of how much fun it's going to be or yeah. it's going to be. <laughs> But, but yeah, and, and that was also causing my body to break down a little bit, which was, again, part of the reason that I circled back to kind of what I was just saying that, you know, I, it became sort of a question of being prudent about also, you know, being out there and knowing that I seem to be susceptible to injury right now and, and that there's not the pseudo, if you want to call it even that safety net. Around. Right. So. Well, you can only be so prudent on through hiking. A lot That's of it is fool. A lot of it is foolish. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I, I mean, uh, there's something in. I don't know if it's American culture because we know about these long distance trails, or just human nature that compels certain individuals to go to these wild places. Whether it's for contemplation, like someone like John Muir, or healing, like. Uh, I think his last name was Schaefer, which is the first guy that hiked the Appalachian Trail. He was a World War II veteran. And the trail itself wasn't fully formed at that time. So he ended up, uh, like he had a map, and he ended up doing a little more road hiking than uh, modern thru-hikers do. But yeah, he's the first one to make it from Maine to Georgia. And I doubt they had white blazes everywhere. (laughs) It's a heck of an accomplishment. And there are... You know, there's all sorts of reasons to go out in the wild. And his, he said, was to walk the war out of his system. Mm-hmm. And I think I can, I can relate to that. Yeah. So you, you read the book, you know a little bit about the story, but I can get into it. If yes, you'd... please. Yeah. So I, I deployed to Iraq in 2007, 2008. I was a drone operator. So as far as jobs go, that's a pretty uh, comfortable job. When you're, when you're deployed, I was on base. It was a small base, and it was considered a dangerous base. 
we had incoming fire uh, daily um, in the beginning, probably the first five or six months. It was a 14-month deployment. And, you know, it's, you're, you're a drone operator, so you've got this airplane. You're looking down on the combat space, and you're seeing combat every day. It's a bit of an abstraction because it's on a screen, but in some cases, you know the people that are on the ground. And it's kind of, it's more of like a meta psychological hardship, I guess. I can't imagine the guys that were in the streets, just the, some of the stuff that was going on back then, but uh, it weighs on you psychologically. It can be taxing. And there have been some stories in the news about, I don't know if they're unique, but just the fact that drone operators are experiencing these sorts of uh, psychological issues, I think is just something new. It's new to warfare, and it's just kind of a, an oddity to, I mean, it's just a novelty, so it's something that is worth reporting. Well, I mean, even though you're you're not necessarily on the street, you're, you're, you're watching it happen in real time, which I think, particularly when you're watching, when you're watching death happening, because I was reading in the book about the Humvee that rolled and burned and, and all of that. And, and that's, that's got to leave a mark on your psyche. Yeah. And that was actually commonplace. That was happening weekly, um, sometimes multiple days in a row. It was, like I said, it was pretty rough. And obviously it's nothing compared to the guys on the street. Yeah. So for a while I just denied actually having an issue because I was like, why would, why would I have any sort of issues? Like I wasn't on the streets. Right. I had a cushy job compared yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of, I guess, maybe a little shame or guilt associated with, with that. But uh, if you look at the arc of my life, and I think even the Appalachian Trail was part of it, there were some some issues going on that I didn't fully comprehend going on inside of me, like deep, mm-hmm. deep tectonic plate type of stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. So I read a lot of adventure books when I was over in Iraq. It was basically my my main form of escapism. Uh, some of your readers might, be, or some of your listeners might be interested if they're readers. Uh, National Geographic put out a list of top 100 adventure books of all time, and okay, cool. I, I don't know where I saw this list for the first time, but I told people before I deployed, "Hey, if you want to send me a gift on the holidays or for my birthday or anything, I just pick a book from this list." I, I believe my mom kept like a a track of books <laughs> had been sent already, and people would call her to see. Anyways, I've got dozens of these books, and I was just reading these adventure stories from, you know, the Arrow, and we were, humanity was exploring the uh, poles, like South Pole, North Mm -hmm. Pole, climbing mountains, doing crazy trips down the Amazon River. I was reading all these stories, and it was totally escapism for me, because it allowed me to immerse my mind and imagination in the world of books versus what I was actually experiencing. And at some point I, I just began to identify with that and said, yeah, I'm going to go on an adventure. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the Appalachian trail. Cause what well, I didn't hear about the Appalachian trail until I was probably 20. I was, I grew up in Wisconsin, so wasn't near the trail and it was pretty like a tight knit community. But when I was uh, stationed in Arizona training to become a drone operator, I met someone who through hiked and what he described was pure misery. But 
but it really piqued my interest. I was like, oh, wow. He said at the end of his hike, I assume this is, now that I knew more about it, I assume this is probably the 100-mile wilderness. And I actually met people that did this. He got rid of his tent. He's like, I just want to drop all my weight. And uh, he just had, had a tarp. And that that definitely piqued my interest. I said, wow, that sounds awesome. And actually, when I was in the 100-mile wilderness, I met a, a northbounder. I, I hiked uh, southbound, so I started in Maine, which is unusual, and we can talk about that. But I met a northbounder who was really close to finishing the trail, and he got rid of his tent. And he he told a story of, he, it was a super rainy day. When we were in Maine, it rained pretty much every day. Super rainy day, he got to the shelter, it was full. He didn't have a tent, he didn't have a tarp. <laughs> so he slept in a in the outhouse which those things are always <laughs> always pretty rough, but I guess it's better than getting rained on. I, I've talked to a few people who've done something similar in order to either get out of the rain or to stay warm. Yeah, I mean, even though it has like this air of civility, like there are shelters, there are signs, you're still at times doing things strictly for survival. So yeah. to actually go into a... Portage on, uh, that's just straight survival. <laughs> like if I if I get my sleeping bag soaked, I don't think I can like stay warm at night. And we've all heard of hypothermia and things like that. <clears throat> so you're making those types of decisions. So yeah, at some point I decide I'm going to hike the trail. I didn't have tons of access to the internet um, when I was overseas, but I would research a little bit. It was actually we'd get. I think we had 15 minutes a day, maybe, and you had to wait in line at this like little cafe that had a bunch of like 20 computers or something for the entire base, and you had to wait in line. So you won't go every day because sometimes you worked 16-hour days and just wanted to go to sleep. But I would research a little bit. Like, all right, Appalachian Trail. Wow, it's so long, 2,000 plus miles, which I would say 2,180 miles, but. It varies. I hear some people say it's different. I would research gear. I really didn't have experience with any sort of hiking gear. And it's just something that was always in my mind. And then I got back home and I told my brother, I told my family, I think I'm going to do this thing. I think I'm going to hike the trail. And they've always been supportive. And I think they probably knew it might be good for me. And my brother, he had, he was just graduating college. And it was great, great recession time, 2009. He didn't really have any job prospects. He already knew like halfway through his degree that that's not really what he wanted to do with his life, but he was committed. <laughs> uh, so he said, yeah, I, I want to hike the trail. I think that'd be cool. And that was kind of his way of putting off the, you know, his plunge into the, I guess, the job market. Which, the real world. Yeah, pretty rough at that time. And it kind of gave him some time to think about what he actually wanted to do. You know, I think for most people, when you're in school, you're, you're just kind of oblivious. And then once you get out, you're like, oh, wow, this is the jungle. I got to survive. So I think that was hitting him pretty hard. Yeah. You've got to start adulting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was yeah. your relationship like with Ben before you guys hit the trail? Um, Were you close and... I wouldn't say we were super close. I mean, we've, we never like got in fights or anything like that, but it's not like we were calling each other or texting each other every day, just maybe every 
month or so, just, hey, how's it going? And I would go up, and that last year I was in the Army, I was stationed in Kansas, and if we had a four-day weekend, I'd drive up and visit him at school at Oshkosh, Wisconsin. That's was kind of a party school, so that was, that was a fun time. And, you know, we'd talk about the trail then, and yeah, we always got along, but it was never super tight, and my family wasn't like a family that would talk about feelings or anything like that, so... Or just kind of surface st- type of relationship. So actually getting on the trail was going to be a good experience for us because we get to know each other a little more. I guess that's it's going to be an intimate uh, situation regardless if you're hiking with family or with strangers just because it is, they see you at your worst, they see you at your most heroic, they see you at your weakest. Um, so you're going to really get to know people at a deeper level than you might otherwise than just a day-to-day civilian work-a-day world. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it was interesting reading your book in terms of that relationship or, or your, your conception of, of Ben, because you seemed to like that he was there, but he also pushed your buttons a lot. Absolutely. (laughs) And and not always to the best effect. <laughs> yeah. So once we got on the trail, I think he, it was like, uh, he just walked into a buzzsaw. You know, we, we were in the hotel in Millinocket, Maine, before summoning in Katahdin. This was the start of our trail. We started on January 2nd of 2009, or July, July 2nd of 2009. And we look at the weather forecast and it just shows rain every single day. <laughs> like a, I don't know if it's a five or 10 day forecast, but it's just rain. <laughs> and Ben's like, so <laughs> should we just wait? <laughs> um, he wasn't, I don't think he, well, he wasn't submerged in the uh, adventure books. So I didn't really know what he was getting into. Uh, for me, that was part of the adventure, but he had a negative attitude early on and it was kind of, um, it it was negatively impacting my expectations for the hike. So like, yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, we're going to have an adventure, but he would kind of bring me down. I was just being like, man, this is kind of dumb. What are we doing <laughs> out here? <laughs> it's like, you can't be talking that way, man. And, and I mean, he was experiencing health issues with his knee early on and he had actually reasons to, to be kind of uh, weary about, what was going on because it was actually damaging his body a little bit, which, uh, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to go a little bit chronologically here, but mm-hmm. yeah, his, his knee would lock up on him occasionally and he thought he'd have to get off the trail, but, but he, and this is trail magic when we were in Maine still, he's struggling with his knee, struggling with his health. Our packs are overweight. We don't really know what we're doing and we meet, uh, we meet someone and he gives my brother a bunch of ibuprofen because he happens to be a, a wilderness first responder and he had a first aid kit. And, you know, when you're on the trail, we ended up in the shelter with him and uh, just have conversations. And obviously, you're going to mention the things that are at the top of your mind. <laughs> yeah. My brother was his knee. And so this guy's like, all right, it's inflammation that's hurting you. Uh, so he takes some ibuprofen and that should give you time to get a knee brace and that'll help you even more. And that was, that was one of those moments on the trail where you're like, yeah, the trail does provide 
and everyone always tells you once you're on the trail, yeah, the trail provides, just uh, it'll give you what you need. I'm sure you've heard that on this podcast before. And there's really some magical stories. I've got another one uh, I'll share later on when we finally make it to Virginia. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You might know what I'm talking about, but yeah, so... We actually started, and I don't think you would have the luxury of doing this on the Pacific Crest Trail, but when we started, our strategy was to keep it at about 10 miles a day for the first month. And that was just so that our tendons could get used to carrying the weight, just so we wouldn't cause any injuries and not maybe burn ourselves out or injure ourselves and have to get up the trail early on. And I don't know where I heard this strategy, but it made sense to me. Like, yeah, let's not push ourselves too hard to begin with. So it actually took us a long time to get through Maine. It took us uh, maybe three weeks. And Maine is, I think it's like 250 miles or something. So early on, it was kind of like a a mind game for us because you don't really feel like you're making progress when you're not knocking states off the list. And we actually felt better than like, we felt like we could hike a lot more miles, but no, we're going to stick to the plan because that's what I had read was, you know, you'll feel good you'll feel fine, but you can really cause damage early on. Right. So that was, that was our strategy. And I'd actually continue to recommend that to, Uh, at least Appalachian trail hikers, if they can afford the time. It's interesting that you say that because that is also, particularly when you're going Nobo on the Pacific Crest Trail, that is also what people say for that, particularly because you start in the desert. And so they're like, you know, start slow, start, you know, 10 miles and, and just slowly progress as you go through the desert. And in that case, you don't have the, the mountains. Uh, yeah. Luckily, you just have the heat and the water issue. But yeah, that all seemed gnarly to me. <laughs> so here's what I don't get about the PCT. You'll have to educate me here. Okay. It's a lot longer than yes. the Appalachian Trail, and you have a shorter amount of time to do it, right? Like there's uh... a shorter window due to weather and snow that you can complete it. Like, what's the average PCT hike like time? It's usually about five or six months. Okay. I yeah, mean, the window to seems. To, yeah, it's it's similar. I mean, the the starting date seems to be around mid March ish. Okay. That that people are kind of starting. I mean, there are people who start earlier, but it's snowy, it's cold, um, and you're waiting for this the snow in the Sierras. That's that's really the trigger in terms of making it the additional distance after you get out of the desert. But you want you also want to finish by. Early October. Okay. Because otherwise, because you're in the North Ca- North Cascades, which means that uh, if you wait too much longer or if you're going too much longer, you're going to be running into snowfall. And that can get obviously cold, but it can also get very dangerous. Uh, as IBTAT found out last year. Uh, what happened there? Uh, no, they were just, they were probably one of the last people to push through. Oh, really? They were there okay. in late October and it... If you go back and watch his videos of those last days on the trail, oh, wow. it's it's cold, it's snowing, the snow is really heavy on the trail, the trail is dangerous because of that, yeah. um, and because of the angle that you're trying to walk through, and yeah, it was, it was a mighty feat for them to get through. 
Now, is there any sort of training for PCT hikers for dealing with uh, snow, snow, walking on snow, and understanding avalanche hazards? Uh, not is there any, really. Is it, okay, I didn't know if what people are doing. To you can do some training. Themselves. You can. Okay. Um, certainly ahead of time, and and it's about walking on snow. It's about walking with micro spikes or crampons and that kind of stuff. But it's almost even more importantly about how to use your ice axe. And what I hear a lot of people doing is once they get into the Sierras and they have an opportunity, you know, on a very mild slope to practice with their ice axe and self-arresting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It seems like any, any chucklehead can step on the Appalachian trail and if they have enough determination and resilience, they could make it through yeah. but the PCT seems like a, a different animal. It sounds and, and fun. <laughs> it's waiting for you. Um, yeah, it is. It, it's funny that you say that, though, because maybe going sobo or maybe going nor- nobo is a is a different thing, a different animal. But I, but I'm listening to or reading your book, and not to jump ahead, but to jump ahead a little bit. You know, because you're going sobo, you're hiking into November and. That's not for any chucklehead. I mean, that's a serious business going on. <laughs> yeah, that could actually be fairly dangerous. Like if someone had a, a fall in a a waterway or something like that, when it's yeah. that cold, that could certainly lead to hypothermia. And if you're in the middle of the mountains, that's a, that's an issue. Yeah, we had some cold nights, but the cold nights we got were actually in Virginia, which was... It's probably still in October at this point. And it was just a cold snap. We still had all our summer gear. We were kind of pushing it. We didn't have our, like, we didn't have fleece layer, like a sweatshirt per se. And, <laughs> and just it would a get, basic fleece layer. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have that. <laughs> and we got caught. We got uh, caught in probably like a week-long cold snap. And they said, like, this is one of the worst cold snaps we've had on record or something like that and, and my brother and i are just looking at each other like yep that's about <laughs> standard par for the course <laughs> and yeah so what we hiked with we hiked with these like marathon runner shorts because you are an endurance athlete out there mm-hmm. so we had these shorts we just had like a real lightweight uh patagonia shirt you know that wicks sweat away and then uh, like a capoline, Patagonia capoline, like a long sleeve shirt and a pair of long johns. And that was all the gear we had during the, or all the clothing we had during this cold snap and our Did sleeping you bags. Did have like a rain jacket, rain pant type of thing? Yeah, we, we did. So oh. we actually relied on those quite a bit too. The, the shell to kind of help block the wind and trap in some of the heat and the sleeping bags. I wouldn't wear the rain gear in this sleeping bags, but Maybe I should have. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were doing all sorts of wild stuff to try to stay warm. Like we'd wrap our, or we'd put our, we'd go into the sleeping bag and then put the, our our feet into our pack just to give us some more separation from the ground. And that was one of our innovations. <laughs> our, and it seemed to work? Uh <laughs> we're still alive <laughs> we're still alive it wasn't comfortable let's just say that you know there's nights out there where you'd roll around every 15 minutes and 
you'd hear like my brother would always do crunches like that's how he'd stay warm so you'd hear like breathing like just weird we're like why is someone working out at two in the morning uh, it's just to just to stay warm <laughs> and i mean that's part of that's one of the beauties of through hiking is it teaches you these types of life lessons like well if you have a goal and you want to get to it you just must learn to adapt and respond to the situation and come up with the best solution you can on hand or that your mind can think of and move forward towards your goal so as um you know, for like a coming of age journey for younger people. I think when I saw people that just graduated high school out there, I was like, wow, this is going to be, this is going to put them in such a good position for life because it's given them such independence and belief in their own ability to adapt and overcome. Like they'll be able to accomplish whatever they set out to after a journey like this. Very true. So I think that yeah, the trail exists for so many reasons, but character development is a big one. And that's what I, you know, there's two journeys in the book, you know, there's the physical journey and then there's the inner journey that was taking place at the same time. And I focused a lot on the writing process was kind of sharing that inner journey with people. I think as far as like my own interests in reading, those are the types of books I enjoy reading. So it's natural that that's what I wrote to share my offering for the world. Well, it seemed like through the book to sort of go back to the beginning again, yeah. I guess, you know, at the beginning, probably, I guess, possibly because it was your idea to hike it. You were the navigator. You were the, the guide, so to speak. But then you had given up that. And I would love to hear more about that process. But but it's almost like in giving that up, it, it allowed you to focus on the things you probably needed to focus on for the trip, which was the physical journey, but also the mental journey that you were taking. Right. So again, this goes back to my brother and he, he had the negative attitude starting on. I don't think he felt he was in control of his destiny and we were hiking miles and my whole goal is, yeah, let's have an adventure. So just kind of like fly by the seat of your pants. Uh, you arrive when you arrive, you know, there's going to be a shelter 10 or 12 miles ahead of you. So why does it matter to know like where things are in between? <laughs> that was kind of my strategy and he really didn't like it. And it was a source of like conflict between us. He's like, well, how much longer do we have to go? It's like, I don't know. Well, whenever we get there, we get there. But he didn't like that. No, and I, he didn't like that. It makes sense to me because his knee hurt him. So he wanted like some sort of sign that he was progressing. And at some point, I just said, in my mind, I was like, well, first off, I don't really care for having this role uh, because I'm not going to be able to do it the way that feels most natural to me and authentic to me. So I said, hey, Ben why don't you plan the days? I mean, your knees hurting you. Uh, you're, you know, better your health and your abilities in a given day. And it was an opportunity to give him ownership of the journey instead of just being like a victim <laughs> to it. And for me, it was fine for me because I had always been more of like a philosophical dreamer type and 
being in that role of planning the day-to-day mileage really wasn't my my thing like if i did the hike by myself i don't know how detailed i'd be with that anyways so given that uh, responsibility to my my brother was yeah like you said as a way to free up my own mind my own mental energies for better or worse and yeah, it, it seemed yeah. <laughs> like it seemed like you know it was a good thing. It was certainly a good thing for him, but it also he became the drill instructor sometimes to your detriment. Yeah, you know this is one of the early realizations I think through hikers will have like oh wow this is this is like a job. This is not not just a walk in the woods, but it's it's honestly it reminded me of the military a bit. Because you have to be fairly disciplined with your day-to-day. All right, what are we going to do? Let's do that. Uh, not all hikers do that. Some are able to be a little more spontaneous with their journey, but that's just not what we did. And, yeah, there would be times where I would have liked to do things a little differently or I would have liked to take a break when my body was starting to fail me. But... My brother had his plan, and <laughs> we we had Follow deadlines. Plan. Yeah, yeah, we had deadlines at certain points. Like, yeah. all right, we're going to meet our family in Duncannon at this date just to celebrate the halfway point. So that gave us a a big sprint that we had to do. And then you know we had well, we want to be home in time for our family Christmas. So that kept us on on uh kept us honest to keep us on a certain pace to get to Springer Mountain. So yeah, we were pushing ourselves and you know there towards the end there there I was losing a lot of weight. I was probably I, I lost 34 pounds and I probably lost it all in the first half of the trail and then I was just running on fumes <laughs> the rest of the time. I don't know what it was. My brother didn't lose any weight. I guess I mean, I have some theories that my pack wasn't big enough to hold like enough food. Like I'd leave town and my food sack would be sticking out of the top of my pack. <laughs> uh, I would eat a lot in town, uh, but it's just one of those things that's hard to gain weight. And that actually became a source of friction for me and my brother as well. He's like, I'm not losing weight. You gotta, you gotta figure this out, Nate. And he'd give me kind of give me crap or. You know, I'd go into town and say, well, I want something healthy because I'm like these ramen dinners are <laughs> depleting me. I need some sort of vitamins and nutrients. And then I'd get something healthy to eat. And my brother would kind of mock me. But I'd also get a pizza and a half gallon of chocolate milk and, <laughs> and you know, the whole through, through hiker thing. I drank so many half gallons of chocolate milk in grocery store parking lots. I don't even know. I can't even keep count. <laughs> Too bad it's not like a thing. Like people celebrate drinking half gallons of chocolate milk in parking lots. Yeah, I was like, and you could throw that thing over your shoulder like a jug of moonshine <laughs> just to celebrate. No, it was, uh, it was, yeah, the, the weight gain is an issue for for hikers for, for sure. The but weight loss, really, you mean? Yeah, the weight loss. Was it literally coming down to you couldn't carry, which it probably was, but that you couldn't carry enough food or calories per se to keep up with what your body was burning based on the amount of mileage activity that you had each day? Yeah, I, th- I, 
I think that's what it was, like just running a deficit. And I'd try things. I'd like carry a jug of olive oil and drink olive oil throughout the day just to have a source of uh, fat. And yeah, it just wasn't working for me. It'd be interesting to try to through hike again and really try to dial in the diet. Like there's certainly there's been some innovations since 2009 on the food yeah. front. I know that I would be interested in like like if I was going to do a hike, I would look at the keto movement mm-hmm. and they're going to have some products that are really high fat and probably fairly dense. And I think that would be a good a good addition to my pack. Just, just to get fat, because you're real like, if you're eating noodles or rice, you're running on carbs, and that's only gonna power you for as long as those uh, sugars last in your bloodstream. Which you know, people get all those fluctuations in energy, the ups and downs. That's because your body's like, you've got carbohydrates and then you don't. But with fats, it's a little more stable. So I'd be interested in seeing how that works for people. I'm sure there's some blogs out there about keto hikers there's got to be i haven't looked at them but yeah there's got to be uh well when you were on the trail you lost about 30 something pounds yeah 34 pounds 34 pounds how was your relationship with food when you got off the trail or how how did that work because you were at an unhealthy weight at that point so kind of how did it work for you getting off the trail with food well i was never able to gain it all back so uh so I was probably like uh I was 195 when I started the trail. A lot of that was muscle weight cuz one of the ways I dealt with like the weird energy you have coming home from Iraq uh I like was I had stopped drinking which is something people do their first few months and I just would go to the gym you know after after work that's what I would do one hour, two hours, whatever. That was just kind of my way to decompress all these weird energies that you have inside of you. So I was probably at my bulkiest. And then I hike the trail and I lose all that. And I lose more. I lose all, all the fat as well. And I guess when I got off the trail, I'd still try to... I'd still eat like a thru-hiker. But, but uh, I think my metabolism was so revved up. Like It, it was strange because you... You could, uh, when you were on the trail, you'd have a beer or something. And there were times where I'd drink a couple beers and I'd almost have like a, a hangover like that same night. Like, I don't know if that was my metabolism or just because my body was weakened by the weight, the weight loss. Um, but that was just uh, an observation. I don't know if there's a through hiker listening to this, if they can relate to that. But that was uh, something that happened. Uh, I don't think I, like, I didn't go on some grand journey to gain my weight back. I just tried to live Mm -hmm. fairly normally. And I was definitely enjoying having foods that you can't have on the trail. Like, I'd be fine if I never ate another ramen packet. (laughs) (laughs) That was was our main, our dinner was a couple squares of ramen and a pack of tuna. It was like, that's pretty much every night for the entire hike. You can never look at tuna again like that? Yeah, not, not, not like that. Now i got to add some mayo or something to it. <laughs> um, circling back to kind of what we were, we were talking about in conjunction with 
you handing off the planning and navigation to Ben was that it kind of allowed you to live in your body a little bit more with kind of what was going on there, which obviously got more and more challenging as you went along, but also kind of dealing with the stuff that you had seen in Iraq and and what did it all mean? So I think that's ultimately the reason why I was attracted to a journey like the Appalachian Trail. And, you know, you're, we're dealing with big stuff as um, soldiers and we're not equipped for it because it's not like a, it's not a, the military culture is not the type of culture that talks about your feelings or what's going on inside of your, your mind. They're trying to get better about it, but it's just not part of like how you perceive the world. But I was using the trail as an opportunity to go inward and just trying to make sense of things. And honestly, I was just super confused. I don't want to make this um, political, but I had mm-hmm. felt like, I felt like, you know, the more conservative world I grew up in, the conservative worldview, like I'd almost been bamboozled by uh, by that. Like, because what I believed to going in to the military, it just didn't seem true. Once I saw what was going on in Iraq, it just didn't make sense. The mission didn't make sense. It didn't feel good. It didn't feel like I was like a righteous liberator. Uh, bringing democracy to this foreign country. I mean, the civil war that, well, I was there, my unit got deployed to stop a civil war that was happening in Baghdad between the Sunni and Shia. And the reason the civil war started was because American troops had destabilized the politics of the region and all of that. So the mission itself seemed weird. I was like, I don't know if we're doing any good here. And you talk to Iraqis on the street and they're like, well, it was better before you guys were here, but well, <laughs> we're just rolling with it. And I just felt really conflicted. So there's this like conflicted energy inside of me. And really it put me at odds with like my, my hometown and my family and, you know, some of the things they believe. And that's a hard thing in and of itself. And I just had all these questions that were just kind of burning, burning me up. And then I eventually met a fellow hiker that he seemed to have some information about, you know, the military industrial complex, uh, geopolitics, all this sort of stuff that I had was confusing to me. He seemed to know about this stuff. And we, over the course of, he was also southbounder, so we'd bump into each other, have like a brief conversation that piqued my interests. And then just kind of keep bumping it into each other along the trail and kind of continue this rolling conversation over the miles. And then we eventually ended up hiking about 800 miles with him. And he was really schooling me on uh, the politics of war, uh, natural resources, uh, all this stuff. And it's just really, in my mind, it was beginning to loosen some of those um, conflicting knots just because I was getting at least to me it was some level of understanding that made sense that I could at least move forward with the world and a lot of the book is about untying all of these knots of 
indoctrination and confusion and just trying to come to some sort of understanding of how things were actually working and and just having those those insights and that understanding you know the trail provides so that person was there for a reason and it actually becomes a major part of the book was these conversations I have and then ruminating on those conversations the following days as I'm hiking and I don't have to worry about the trail mileages or anything. So I can really focus on that. And it's really me just coming to terms with the way things are and learning to be okay uh, or come to peace with the way things are. And your part within the way things are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all have a certain level of uh, power or influence and it's probably a lot smaller than any of us would like to have because we want to see the world become a better place ideally and you know if this this book and getting my message out is one way for me to say maybe have an influence on on people's thoughts and maybe help others who are confused the way I was confused um, come to some sort of understanding, whether they agree with it or not. Um, it would at least help them understand like the worldview of some people. Well, it was know? interesting. It was interesting in reading the book. And, and honestly, I don't know if, or I was wondering if Dylan was an actual person or if Dylan was a representation of a couple of different people that you were having conversations with throughout, because it was so interesting and it goes back to what you were just saying about the trail providing that like Dylan would drop in and, and you would have a conversation which would start your mind spinning about something. And then he would go off and you would be processing. And then sort right. of as you process through that, Dylan would end up coming back in and, and you would have another conversation and then you would be processing that as he went off on his journey. And so that was why it was making me going, I wonder if this is multiple people just sort of condensed into one right. person. <laughs> Well, if it truly was this one person who just... It was, it was one person, and obviously, just I took some artistic license so that things could yeah. flow in a, like a way that was uh, coherent for the reader. Absolutely. But, you know, my family was invited to his wedding, and we've, we've been family friends for, you know, since 2009. So he's a been... A decade. Yeah, he's, he's been someone in our... That's part of our life now. And, yeah. you know, he kind of came from a different, uh, I don't, I don't want to say like, he just approached life from a different angle. Like, I think he was the first true free thinker, free spirit type of person I met. And the trail, the trail attracts all sorts of these people. So that's one of the things I love about the through hiking community. It's a bunch of people I don't necessarily... I won't necessarily say fringe because sometimes they're like lawyers and they just break free for six months or whatever. But it's a, it's just a type of community with uh, a set of values or interests that obviously just correlates with my own. So if you meet one through hiker, you can assume that there's something about them that you're going to get along with. <laughs> right. You have at least one thing in common. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and if nothing else, you can start talking about that and then maybe edge into other things. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, what was also so interesting to me about the conversations you were having was, and, and what I liked about the book was both you had his viewpoint, which was antithesis almost of what you'd grown up with. And then you're processing through of it and, and taking some of it, but not taking all of it and comparing it against what you had grown up with and, and sort of finding your own place within that, uh, but within the realms of the two sides. Right. And I think our country is dealing with that, like as a microcosm is there's, there's these extremes on both sides and then people are trying to find something that they can live with hopefully in the middle that can hopefully help balance these two extreme polarities going on. And that's, you know, I felt that in my body, like there's this anger. There's a lot of anger I had coming home from Iraq and I didn't really realize it, but I was able to get rid of some of that on the trail, just processing those sorts of things. But I ultimately we just all have to, come to some sort of conception of the way things are that bring us to some level of peace. Cause if you can't have, if you can't have that in your life, it's just going to be a disaster. But, but I think a lot of times coming to some sort of peace takes work because it takes processing. It takes thinking, it takes thinking outside of the box, whatever your box is, um, which can be hard. Right. It's actually like anytime you question the foundation of your basis of like your understanding of reality, it can be deeply destabilizing. Yes. And if you're not surrounded by good people or have some sort of guide who's been there themselves, or you're not finding the right books, um, it can result in all sorts of like outlashes and, <laughs> and just all sorts mm-hmm. of weird, weird behavior. Did you feel destabilized on the trail as you were processing through this? I mean, it's a journey that took years to fully unfold. It's like I had the information and I was processing things on the trail, but I don't think I got, I got to that point while I was on the trail necessarily. So it took years to really break the chains of indoctrination. But yeah, I feel like I got to a, there were times where it did feel destabilizing because I guess this is a trick our mind plays, but you can kind of like put thoughts in other people's heads. You're like, well, all those people think that and I just don't support that. So they must be bad people. I, but that's not necessarily true because you also see them going to church and they're doing all these good things for the community. And it's just so many uh, paradoxes and hypocrisies that I think my mind just had a hard time. Uh, grappling with all those things until eventually I just learned to let go. And I think that's the lesson I, I wanted to, to share with people is like, yeah, this stuff will just burn you up on the inside unless you learn to just let it go. It's, it's part of the human condition. People have been writing about it for thousands of years and you can understand it. Uh, you can't like, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it's just the way it is. So if you can come to some level of peace with that, then um, your life will be a lot, lot easier. I, was, I don't, I don't want to be like a, a, a spiritual teacher type of person, but I did, I did also 
you know, over those years after the trail, I did read a lot of books by spiritual teachers that would, that kind of helped point the way for me, you know, ways to discipline my mind um, that would put me at more, more peace and, and equanimity with the way things are. So, you know, there's, there's that information overload we can get that challenges our worldview and maybe makes us, might destabilize us a little bit. A a good example would be, you know, a freshman in college suddenly taking their first courses and they're learning about uh, all these injustices and things for the first time. And that might be hard for, for a freshman in college. I know Joseph Campbell, uh, who's a, a mythology teacher, he made a, in one of his essays, he said, like, you could always see the the kids that were having the hardest time with the information because <laughs> they'd show up bright-faced and bushy-tailed early in the semester. And then once they started learning about these sorts of injustices that they're just blind to their entire life, uh, you could see their appearance kind of become more haggard. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're, they're taking that inner journey and they're not so uh, concerned with the outer world in that period of time they're wrestling with a few demons. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's good to have this type of information out there because uh, I feel like the country is going through a bit of a paradigm shift at this time. And if people don't have those tools, like the uh, lessons I was getting in some of these books from these teachers, then they're going to have a hard time, you know? So the more this information can get out, maybe the smoother, these transitions will be for people because I think, yeah, there are, there's a paradigm shift and it can be destabilizing for people. And that plays out in like the ebb and flow of the political life. Like someone says, no, I don't want things to change. And then they go extreme, like hard edge. Let's keep everything the same or go back to the glory days. Whereas maybe a different path would be required for just based on new information. But that could be destabilizing for someone, you know. So I think it's interesting that that not only do individuals go on these types of journeys, but so do cultures and civilizations. And I think in my little way, I hope that uh, my book can help some people take that journey along with me and maybe for themselves start that journey. I, I feel like the greatest gift we can give ourselves is the space to, to think, to process, to not necessarily be so, I need an answer right now, but to actually be able to, to think and to give it the space and time it needs to truly think through it all, to to be able to think through it all. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, I think that attracts people to the these types of journeys like the trails, uh, long distance through hikes. It's because there is some level of separation you get from the, I mean, I don't want to talk bad about it, but just the day to day grind when you're living in the city, you know, you're working and you might have a commute and that eats up most of your day. And then you've got a few hours to take care of yourself at the end of the day. And that's mostly chores if you're lucky, you can do some reading before bed. And that's most people's like work week. 
Yeah. And there's not, there's no time to process anything during that time. And on the weekend, it suddenly becomes chores, it becomes all sorts of uh, grocery shopping, stuff like that. And there really isn't a great place in our culture or society just to take that time to process things. I think historically, like the Sabbath, uh, that was something they observed to maybe fulfill that type of function. But there's not... That doesn't really exist in the modern in the modern era. It's almost like um, like yeah, we, like back in the day, people would. I don't know if you remember doing this. If you had like an old PC where you defrag the hard drive, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where you just and it take like twelve hours or whatever, <clears throat> and it just kind of like uh, clean up your computer and make it function a little bit better. It's almost like going out on the trail or going on like a meditation retreat. Uh, that's defragging your hard drive. It's like, all right, I've got all this like conflicting data, maybe old data that needs to be discarded. It hasn't been used in a while or it's outdated. And then I just want to, I want to get that hard drive operating smoothly. Uh, so it's f- functioning well. And I think, yeah, going out and just in nature, like I said, some of those books would help with that process of some of these teachers like Eckhart Tolle or, even some of the the older, the older teachers. Um, I, I mentioned in the book, the Tao Te Ching. I was going to say the older teachers. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an older teacher. That's uh, the Tao Te Ching. That book, it, it's, uh, I think it stands for the way of the soul. And it's just ways to interact with the world around you that um, will keep you totally at peace. And there's paradoxes in the in the book itself, and those are just ways of kind of like uh, releasing your grip from your understanding of the way things are. Like it's almost meant to confuse you to the point where you're you're not gonna hold fast to these old stories you tell yourself or these beliefs that may not be true anymore. And that that was super helpful, and that was part of my journey on the trail. You know, I think that's. Like if people are going out on the trail, uh, they're going to have time to think. I mean, there is a lot of time where you have to be engaged with uh, the guidebook and the day-to-day activities, but there's time to let your mind roam when you're on the trail. And I actually, like we didn't take cell phones with us. This is 2009. We, we could have, but I actually, I talked to someone recently and He's like, yeah, the trail's changed because people are taking their cell phones out there. So they're listening to music, they're listening to podcasts, and they're not actually having those opportunities to just let their mind do what their mind needs to do. So I don't know if you've heard heard anyone cha- talking about those changes in the trail culture, but I, I would, for anyone reading this who's thinking of, or anyone listening to this who's thinking about going on the the trail uh, to do a distance hike, I would, I would really ask them to consider whether or not they want to carry a cell phone. The the difficulty with not carrying a cell phone is that so many people are using the gut hooks app for navigation. Interesting. Um, But so, so it becomes the navigational tool, but I, but I definitely get your point about, turning it off or or putting it away i should say in terms of 
using it to engage your mind for other things besides being able to allow yourself that time to think. Oh, there's a different pace in the natural world. Yeah. You know, when you're out there hiking for so long, you're seeing the change in seasons. You're seeing how this affects, you know, the, the flow in the river, like during springtime, the rivers are swollen. And then during the summers, they go down to a trickle. Um, sometimes you see them frozen. You're just seeing, you're just experiencing life at a different pace that might change the pace of your mind. It might change uh, the types of thoughts you end up having. You might be able to see things from a different angle, which I, I listened to a couple of your most recent episodes. And yeah, it sounds like that's pretty universal as people want to go on the trail because, you know, it might feel like their life is becoming stagnant or, but if you bring all your, say your social media addiction with you out on the trail, <laughs> you're not, <laughs> you're not really setting yourself up for success on that front. And I understand that people use those apps to navigate. Um, I guess on the Appalachian trail, it's more defined. So you will not necessarily need that. And if other people do have cell phones out there, you can always use someone else's cell phone if you're ever in a tight spot. But we we made it along the trail just fine without, without cell phones. And I'm really glad that's the route we took. It also forces you to like talk to locals because every once in a while you need to borrow a cell phone from someone in like a bar <laughs> in rural Virginia. And it, you know, it just makes you more dependent on the communities that, you know, you're, you're just passing through these communities, but you're also wanting to experience these communities because they do do a lot of things to help through hikers. And I know if I lived in a, t a trail town, I would really enjoy hanging out with through hikers or through hikers have amazing stories, good stories. They have good, uh, good energy, yeah, I think it's uh, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice if you're giving yourself too many too many amenities. Can I share a story that I heard? It was it wasn't from my through hike, but I think it's probably the best trail story I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, please! All right, so there was a, a through hiker. This is the Appalachian Trail, and there's a section where you hike through Hanover, and trail just goes through town it's, it's like a really nice town it's the it's uh dartmouth college is there just kind of i guess considered an ivy league so as a through hiker you already feel out of place You're like well i probably shouldn't be <laughs> i shouldn't be here i smell bad and i look funny and so there's a through hiker that was hiking through and he sees a cooler on the sidewalk he's like awesome trail magic and this is in the middle of town so he sits down next to the cooler and he opens it up. Oh, nice sandwich. So he starts eating and he's like drinking the Gatorade in there. He's eating the sandwich. And all of a sudden this construction worker runs across the street and he's swearing at him. He's like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? <laughs> it was his lunchbox. <laughs> <laughs> he just ate a dude's lunch. I thought that was pretty, pretty funny. You get used to the trail providing. Yeah. I mean, I think Northbounders probably experience it a little more than Southbounders do. But there's a whole culture around supporting through hikers and 
there'll be times where you cross the road. There's like a, maybe a little like parking lot there for the trailhead for day hikers. And there'll be a car there and there'll be like five coolers laid out. And it's just full of beer, sandwiches, cookies, anything a through hiker would want. And there were times in New York that when the springs were, the springs were dry, it just was a, I don't know if it was a droughty year or what, but it was hard to find water in some places in like the New York, New Jersey area. And there was a, like a trail angel club in that part of the state. And they would just put gallon jugs of water kind of at these crossings. So you top off your water or otherwise you wouldn't necessarily have access to drinking water that night, which this kind of like doesn't work. <laughs> you need water yeah. to cook and you need water to, to drink. Obviously we actually had one time in, in New York where we made it to the shelter and we had pushed ourselves to get there because we need, we need water. We're out of water. Can't find it. And one of the reasons we stayed at the shelters was because there was always like a water source and we get there and it says there's a spring in back. We like look around, can't really find anything. There's like a kind of like a muddy area. Like, well, I guess that's the spring. So we try to dig down and just like our little, little hole filled with water, which is, something you learn on these survival shows as you're, <laughs> yes, as you're growing up. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to use this. But then the mud just kept collapsing into the, the pit and then it looked so nasty anyways that I didn't really want to drink it. And we didn't, we got rid of our water filter at this point. We were just using bleach drops, which I don't know. <laughs> That's just like something we heard on the trail that we could do. And I don't know if it's like scientifically verified or what, but we'd put, two drop two two to three drops of bleach in a quart of water i'm not going to recommend this to anyone but <laughs> we never got sick uh, i was lightweight so my brother he pulls out the guidebook he's like man we got to find some water uh next shelter was kind of far so we ended up there was like a gravel road there and then in the guidebook it said well there's this place it's called dancing bones village so apparently it's like a commune and, you know, Ben and I are both sheltered Midwesterners. <laughs> that sounds like the craziest thing ever. Uh, we're like, well, I guess if they have water, we, we'd better go there. So it's like a mile, mile and a half off trail. So we follow this gravel road. We see this sign going up this windy driveway. Uh, this is actually in New Hampshire, I believe. And, it's kind of sketchy. Like the sign kind of looks like dilapidated and like, I don't know if I want to go up there, Ben, but he's, he's embracing the spirit of the trail at this point. He's, he's in better spirits. once we get down there. So we go up there, there's like a communal kitchen area and there's like a, a dance stage. Like, okay, I guess these people like to dance. This is kind of strange to me. And we see a spigot and it works and we're filling up water and, and ultimately someone comes out we meet, we meet this lady who's uh, kind of like a spokesperson for the, the community at this point. And I kind of had this weird vibe the whole time. I was, I was just, I don't know if it was like my military experience and I just had like an overactive imagination about these things, but 
my brother was totally cool with it. Anyways, this lady said, hey, well, you can stay you can stay here. Just set up your camp in the forest over there. And and we'd, we'd love to have you. Like, she's nothing but like the nicest seaman in the world. But for whatever reason, I was suspicious. And that night, we're, we set up the tent. And there's a cat. And this cat is in heat. And it's making the craziest sounds. And I'm already on edge. And I, I feel like I'm in like some horror movie. <laughs> and my brother doesn't even notice. He's just snoring away. And uh, I, I wake up. Like, I, I wake him up in the middle of the night. I'm like, Ben, do you hear that? That's like the craziest sound ever. And he's he's like, man, it, it reminds me of the movie The Village, which is a horror movie where there's people yeah. in this community and they, they're walking around in robes and they're, I believe they're killing people. <laughs> so I was, I was not happy to have that like vision in my mind. It's my brother. <laughs> and he probably just dropped right back to sleep. Yeah, he, he just rolled over and went back to sleep. And I think eventually I just tired myself out. And it was totally cool. Like the community was great. Everyone was awesome. But I just had like <laughs> momentary freak out. And I guess that's a good example of the way that our, our looping thought patterns can actually influence our perception of reality and it's not always healthy so that was a good example for me like okay well it was good for ben but it wasn't good for me what was actually going on there and it just turns out it's just a bunch of old hippies from like the 60s and you know they had this grand vision in the 60s and it never never played out but at i started feeling like some sort of kinship with them because man they were they're like leading the anti-war protests and their efforts on the streets with their protests actually put pressure to end the war. So I should like be thanking these people because I'm beginning to understand like that type of logic. And it was really a a check for me. Like what are my own prejudices and biases? And uh, it was a good learning experience. Just at any time you're, you're around people that, or you know, they have different ideologies or different ways of seeing the world. It's always an opportunity to learn and listen and maybe come to a more expansive understanding of what it actually means to be here experiencing this life. The human experience. Yeah, the human experience. So there's so many, yeah, it's just part of the trail. You, you're going to meet people. Like I met someone uh, he was a hiker from Philadelphia and he was like at, every morning he'd wake up and he'd start journaling about his dreams. And I'd never heard of anything like that. That was kind of like far out to me. And I, so I'd ask him about it and yeah, just the trail is a good opportunity to broaden your horizons, get a little culture. To go to the most uncultured area of the world, <laughs> the country. I love it. Yeah. It's uh bizarre but that's the way it is that the trail is like this little magical hub of these free thinkers and yeah all these types of people that for me at that time that's just what i needed the trail provides yeah it does to to switch topics on you a little bit what was your trail name out there uh my trail name was bear bait and how did that come about yeah so that was my brother. I don't know if it's like a, some sort of passive aggressive move. That's how <laughs> I, I took it. But uh, I was just eating uh, this like family sized sandwich outside of this uh, 
grocery store in might have been in Rangeley, Maine. And I was just going at this thing with so much passion. And there were like bits of food falling all over me, like mayo and mustard, like falling on my lap and my shirt. And my brother's just looking at me and shaking his head, like, get a hold of yourself, man. He's like, man, you got your bear bait, man. You got food all over you. You're going to be in the forest and you're going to be attracting all these animals. So I ended up like introducing myself as BB later on in the trail. It's like, I'm BB. And my brother was gas tank. First off, he had like, he could just keep going. He was like the energizer bunny, just keep pumping his legs. So he had like that reserve of energy that I was, you know, as I was losing weight, my tank was getting emptier, emptier. Yeah. (laughs) And then also like, just uh, when you're eating, like when you're experimenting with your diet and trying to come up with ways of getting more, more fat and calories, like for a while, my brother was testing out lentils. So he became pretty, uh, pretty gassy. <laughs> like, okay, gas tank. <laughs> That's it. It just fits on so many levels. And then that kind of gave him uh, a license to introduce himself that way. And then once he was at a shelter, it was like, fair game for him because it's just assumed that that was his, his thing. <laughs> his, his special trait. <laughs> he took advantage of the opportunity. Yeah. And that's funny. Once you, when you read through the trail registers, I don't know if the PCT has this, I don't even know yeah. if they have shelters out there, but on the AT, uh, there's a notebook in pretty much every shelter. It's just considered the trail register. You can just check in, like, hey, I stopped here um, on this date. And then your friends, if they're behind you, they can kind of get an idea of where you are. Or it's just recorded for posterity. I don't know where these things are stored. I don't know if there's some database of all the trail registers. But if you go through the trail register pretty much every day, the things that hikers look forward to is, like, food, eating, and pooping. It's like, that's the trail register. Came in here man, I really like that. I really like this, uh, this outhouse here. It's great. <laughs> this was a <laughs> outhouse. Yeah. Or I came here and there'd be like a long passage about cooking some food that they got from like some trail angel or, you know, some, some town food that they, they cooked that was amazing because it wasn't ramen. But there's also, there's some funny stuff in those trail registers as well. We saw like a flow chart and I actually took a picture of it because I thought it was so funny. It's like a flow chart. Do you like ticks? Yes. Keep going. And then I just go to progressively worse and worse things. Like, do you like hiking for hours and hours and getting to the top of a mountain that's covered in trees and has no views? Yes. And it just kept going. And then if you agreed to yes to all those things and it says, congratulations, you're a through hiker. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> go consult your local psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's trail humor and people take it, take it kind of lightly. Like, yeah, what we're doing is kind of strange, but we embrace it. Yeah. And, and apparently there's other people who enjoy it as well. So absolutely. There's, there's the community of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I had to, I guess going back to your, your trail name a little bit, it seems so appropriate Later on in the trail, when you guys ended up 
uh, camping in a blueberry patch. <laughs> yeah. And, and you actually had a visitor. We did. So we didn't, uh, we didn't grow up in an area that had blueberry patches. So didn't really know where we were camping. Didn't really understand to look for these sorts of things. But, you know, we're setting up our camp. We got our, we got our tent set out. We're cooking food. I just opened my packet of tuna and like dumping it into the ramen. And all of a sudden I hear, hear like a, a snapping branch. It's like, well, that's not natural. Something's definitely moving towards us. <laughs> and it's like, well, my brother's like, maybe it's a raccoon. It's like, no, that's a pretty big branch. So I like step up on this rock to like overlook the, where I had heard it to see if I can catch a glimpse of anything. And all of a sudden this bear pops up, black bear. I, I yell at it. I like jump off the rock and I must have scared it enough that it, it runs off and it runs away. It's unfortunate um, because it was like the most idyllic camping site we'd had of, we'd had up to that point. It was like this beautiful camping site, but then I go in, it's like trying to like maybe look for a bear print or something, just kind of investigating the scene of the crime, and I realize like, oh, well, we're surrounded by blueberries, <laughs> but we still we still uh, camped there that night. We just made sure to hang a bear bag, and it's like the most diligent job we'd ever done of it. Like, this is the <laughs> highest bear bag <laughs> that may have ever been on the Appalachian trail. Oh, we did a good job. Yeah. So these are just lessons you learn as you go. And, but, but you stay, I mean, I get hanging the bear bag and obviously that's helpful, but you're basically in the middle of lunch. Their food. Yeah. Well, so it's not like the bear bag hanging is going to help that much. Right. I guess we were just uh, tired. <laughs> we were good with it, I guess. I guess you accept a, a certain level of risk when you're on the trail. And for us, we were able to rationalize <laughs> that risk because we didn't want to tear down our tent and keep hiking, I guess. Did you guys at least eat some blueberries? Oh, absolutely. There are times, <laughs> there are times on the trail where... You know, we're a couple of miles from the shelter and we know, you know, we still got several hours of sunlight and it won't take us long to get there where you'd find a blueberry patch and you just sit there for an hour or two and just fill a Ziploc bag, a couple of Ziploc bags and then just carry them, carry them to the shelter and enjoy them there or just try to eat them for the next couple of days, which that's a good pastime. For as far as trail pastimes go, because you Thinking get some food out of it, yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, there's got to be some of that on the uh, PCT. Oh yeah, like there is Washington and Oregon. Yeah, no, there there's definitely berry berry patches and stuff like that along along the trail. But it comes down to this uh, decision, like how how focused am I on this far away and distant goal, and like, am I, do I really have the time to take a break and be present for a moment and just kind of do this thing that's not necessarily aiding in uh, achieving my goal, but it's a pleasant pastime. And I was realizing kind of early on in the hike that 
we were foregoing a lot of those types of experiences because we were kind of becoming slaves to these invisible mileage numbers that we had in our head. Like, no, we we can't do this. We got to make it to this area. Uh, we got to make it to Duncannon on this date. So we have to average 18 miles a day, whatever. And it's kind of a shame, but it's also necessary to have that certain level of discipline to make it through the trail. So it's just the, the dichotomy of life, I guess, like to be present or to be aware of these future uh, goals and to honor those goals and intentions. I think that's part of, I think that's part of life, but in the trail maybe it's just a little more um, accentuated that I was able to notice those sorts of things. Did you have the feeling particularly early on that, that the trail, that hiking the trail would last forever? And then was there a moment during that when you realized that it was going to come to an end and that it was going to be a much faster than you maybe wanted it to be? Yeah. So obviously early on you're hiking like, Oh, we made it a hundred miles in 10 days. That seems like nothing. <laughs> when you're, you've got the whole guidebook ahead of you and you know, the total mileages and even when you're halfway through the trail, it seems like, man, I'm not making any progress here. Like it feels good, but it still feels like you have a lot ahead of you. I really didn't start feeling like, oh, this trail's getting close to being done until I was in North Carolina, in Franklin, North Carolina, which is kind of like the, pretty sure it's like the last major town for us before Springer Mountain. And I kind of had like this bittersweet, melancholy type of mood overtake me like, oh, the trail's ending. Like, yeah, the trail's hard. The trail's challenging. And you miss your showering daily. You miss clean clothes. You miss being comfortable. You miss having access to the internet, all sorts of things. But there's something inside of me that said, I'm not ready for it to be over. So my brother and I actually slowed down for the past, or for the last few days. Um, we were a bit ahead of a schedule ahead of schedule and we we're meeting my dad and my uncle to hike the, this last uh, 30 miles with and it was cold it was still uncomfortable but it kind of felt yeah bitter bittersweet you know and at that time I really didn't feel like I had found any closure that I needed to find I'd certainly come to a little more understanding but you know that opens up more questions if anything. And maybe I'd, I felt like my expectation for the trail was that it would give me some sort of grand uh, understanding or type of experience. And I just didn't feel like I had that yet. And that, that kind of became like, well, I guess if I, I had placed all my hope on this type of adventure to fix my life, I guess, be the way to think of it and it hasn't happened. And then maybe, maybe it's unfixable because it seems like the trail is so such an extreme thing to do for that. So there was a little bit of that, that sadness. And, but I tell you what, the first day you wake up in a warm, soft bed, (laughs) 
you feel okay with it. You're like, okay, all right, I'm back to the real world, back to civilization. <laughs> this is a new, it's a new thing. And there is, a, I'm sure you've had people talk about it, but it's important just to let people know about it is there is this phase after the trail. It's like almost like a, a depression. I feel like so much of the life on the trail is, it's almost like what, what we evolved for, you know, hunter, hunters and gatherers, just, just walking every day, meeting all sorts of people. It's almost, it feels like a, a routine sort of, but every, every day you're encountering novelty and there's an excitement about getting to town days. You know, you always have something to look forward to, you know, hitting the next milestone, whatever. And then just getting back into the, the quote unquote real world. Um, you, you don't have that anymore. You kind of, and I did, obviously I didn't have a job right away I lined up. I actually ended up going to Alaska and training sled dogs, but <laughs> that's <laughs> random. Yeah, totally random. But so you kind of do slip into this funk and it's fairly common, but it just takes time to adjust. And I thought I'd be taking showers every day, but you, it feels like so excessive to take showers every day. Once you get off the trail, it's like maybe every <laughs> third or fourth day and you still feel super clean and weird about it. But eventually get back into that routine as well. <laughs> I guess the, the challenge is particularly if, if you've gone out to the trail to process and to think, to think through things that you're not going to have solved your, all of your problems. You're not going to have solved the world's problems by the time you finish the trail. And so the challenge is, coming off of the trail to still give yourself the time to think and process because as you pointed out, the world, the busy world that we live in doesn't really allow for that unless you make time for it. Right. And it has to be a priority for there to actually be time for it. And our culture is all about productivity and all this stuff. And so just sitting there and thinking about things isn't necessarily something that uh, would gather much support <laughs> from anyone in your life. Uh, the writing process for me was kind of the culmination of this because I was doing some thinking and making some connections that I hadn't made before as I was writing. Like it was like exploring my psyche in, in ways that, uh, you know, when you sit down and, I gave myself the goal of writing 1500 words a day. So come hell or high water, even if like I was having a hard time coming, like coming up with interesting takes or angles on things. I would, I would, I would just force myself to sit there until something came to me, something new or novel came to me. And within the writing process, I was able to like, when you get that information, it's coming in you and it's having impacts on maybe like a subconscious level, but then just to be able to put words to what was actually happening inside of you and be a little more eloquent and artistic with it. I think there's a value in being able to you know, organize your mind and 
get a, a little deeper understanding. And as soon as you can articulate things, um, you can be, you can look at them from a different angle. Like you're, it's not, it's no longer this thing that has control over you. It's suddenly like something that you can step aside and look at it and then analyze it for what it is. Whereas if it's like, for instance, if it's like a, an emotion like anger, if that's just inside of you and you don't have a word for it, it's just a feeling, um, then it kind of controls you. But if suddenly you take the time and like in my writing, I, I was like, wow, I'm angry. There's moments where I like really want to say some like harsh things, I guess. And then you can step back from that and say, Oh wow, there's anger inside of me. That's so strange. I never, <laughs> I never would have known. And then, you know, that just begins another, that's just another process of looking at it for what it is. Okay. What's causing this? What's, yeah, it's just personal development. And at, at some point it felt like, well, maybe this just goes on forever. I don't know. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> uh, it just goes in circles forever. But I, I, you know, at the end of the book, I share an experience where, at least for me, it felt like my answers were, que- all of my questions were answered. And I just kind of found a, a piece with it. And so I'd say my my inner journey while I continue to learn new things and I'm constantly uh, growing my inner journey and that confusion has, has left me. So whatever that dissonance was inside of me is now, now at peace. And I attribute the writing process to that. And, you know, when you're writing and you're trying to think of things a little more deeper than you would, if you're just experiencing them, if you're just there, absorbing it it just it's a entirely new angle to look at life and for me that's what i needed and i've been fortunate and privileged to have the not only time on the trail time in alaska and i've i made it through college and a master's program and in between there i had a winter off and i spent the winter writing so I've been fortunate to have time to step back and, and do that introspection that I needed. And I can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't have those opportunities. It, it's funny, or not funny, I guess, but uh, ironic. The For me, the quarantine has been certainly an opportunity to, to do writing and, and thinking because there's not much else going on for me. And that's, that's such a gift. Like, I know it, that's, that's how I have to look at it. It's a gift. It's when this whole, gift. when this whole thing kicked off and, you know, it seems kind of chaotic, like this is unprecedented. People are stuck in their houses with uh, spouses. They may not know <laughs> that well, like uh, kids that they support, but may not have like a super deep connection with. I've heard just from listening to podcasts with people that talk about this stuff. Like it's really deep into their connection with family. It's really helped them reevaluate what's important. Like uh, I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast and he has a lot of comedians on and they're like, man, life I've been on the road for so many years. I've never been home this long 
and it's awesome. I feel, I feel so good. And I think that's, that's an interesting, yeah, it's just an opportunity kind of like the trail to experience life a little bit differently and it's forced on everyone. And you're going to be stuck there. So you're going to have to deal with your stuff because you can't, you can't leave. Like there is no escapism from the life that you've created (laughs) in a quarantine. So you really have to, um, take, take stock of, of your, your life. If you're, if you're inclined towards that type of introspection, it's going to happen. It's funny that you say that because I've heard a lot of people say that about the trails as well. And that because no matter how introspective you naturally are, there's just a lot of time, even if you try to fill a lot of it, but there's just a lot of time to think. And so you can only run from your stuff for so long because it will keep coming up and keep coming up until you deal with it or until you process it. And the trails sort of force that onto you. Yeah. I think everyone's experience is different, but, um, if you're, like I said, if you're inclined towards that type of introspection, you're going to be, it's going to be hard to avoid it. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, exactly. What, for you, what was the most or one of the most difficult or challenging things about the trail? Hmm. Uh, for, for me, it was my diet. I had a hard time knowing what to do. And at a certain point, I I won't say I was panicking. I was just like, this is just what's happening. But uh, there are points where I'd get lightheaded. I, I blacked out at one point. Um, and it became concerning, and I just couldn't put on weight if I tried. Like, And we didn't have time to hang out in a town for a week and just gorge ourselves on pizza so that that was a hard thing for me like i said i I would be much more scientific about it if i were to through hike again Uh, i would probably carry a larger pack we ended up with 55 liter packs um and like i said when we were leaving town my food stack would be sticking out of it and i know there's probably better gear now it's not as bulky so maybe 55 would be fine, but I'd probably go for a 65 liter if I was doing it again, just so I had extra space. And yeah. you carry the extra weight that is food. Yeah, yeah. And even that's a weird calculation. Like, okay, I'm carrying more weight. That will make me <laughs> yeah. lose more calories. So what's like, what's the sweet spot here? And I guess my brother, he must have been at that sweet spot. He's smaller than me, so maybe he was able to carry enough food and I wasn't for my particular body type. Well, and that's honestly not that unusual for men. You know, I've heard somebody say, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I've heard somebody say that, that, you know, for women, it's probably around 4,000 calories. Oh, wow. Per day. Yeah, that's a lot of calories. That is a lot. (laughs) And that's, and that's for women. So men are, more obviously um and when you start packing that into like what does that actually come down to food wise it's a lot (laughs) yeah like how much can i actually carry (laughs) 
Right. And how much can you act? Because I've also heard people talk about it the other direction, which is, I know I need all these calories, but I just can't eat anything more right now. Like I'm so sick of eating. That was not my experience. <laughs> I was like one of those dogs that just like eat their food bowl in like seconds. That was like, yeah, yeah. I, I could have kept eating. I just didn't have it. There'd be times where I'd be like, so my stomach would be gnawing at me so much where I'd I knew I didn't have any food to spare, but I'd still go through my food sack. Like, all right, that's three days worth of food there. That looks like three days worth of oatmeal. Like, can I spare this Snickers bar? No, I better not, because <laughs> I'm going to want that. That's just to occupy my just, mind. Just a quarter of a Snickers bar? Yeah, come on, a... <laughs> come on. And we were doing, you know, Snickers bar, dunking them in peanut butter. And it felt like so unhealthy, but when you're on the trail, it's calories, calories, calories. Yep, exactly. I guess the challenge is to maybe stop eating like that when you get off the trail. Oh, absolutely. Because those pounds can catch up to you much quicker. Oh, that, yeah. That wasn't my personal experience, but I've heard people <laughs> say, like, I got chubby after the trail <laughs> just because I kept yeah. eating that way. It's, it's hard to stop eating everything in sight. Because it's a habit. Yeah, and your metabolism's still revved up, and it's like adjusting to normal life next to a refrigerator. What for you is the iconic moment? Your kind of one of your favorite moments of the trail. For me, it was just the first day up there on Mount Katahdin because it felt because I had thought about it so much, and it it almost had like a dreamlike quality when I was hiking up Katahdin and through the, the mist and fog, I could see the outline of the, the sign, the Katahdin sign up there. It's like, man, it feels like I'm walking into a daydream. Like this is actually happening. Like so many years of just thinking about it, that this is finally reality. And honestly, if I had to, if I only had like uh, a month or could only pick one state to hike on the Appalachian trail, I would, I would hike Maine for sure. That was, it's like a good way to start the trail because it's so beautiful. It's rugged. It's, it's got variations. It's like, you got like low, boggy lowlands and then you've got peaks uh, all sorts of mountains to climb. Maybe it's a little bit harder on beginners. It's maybe a harder place to start um, the hike as a southbounder because it's just more challenging topography. But yeah, just being being in Maine those first few days, like oh wow, we're we're doing this. This is actually happening. Uh, we did a road trip out to Maine, the family. My dad made it fun. Uh, we toured, I think, 10 breweries on the way out. <laughs> uh, so it was definitely a, a fun trip out there. But then the parents drive away after we hike Katahdin. And they're like, yeah, this is real. Now we're, we're, we're on our own. And we're living with the consequences of our decisions. <laughs> All right. <laughs> T- time, to, uh, time to figure it out as we go and adapt and overcome. And there was a lot of adapting because we 
once you're on the trail, you realize, all right, there's better ways to do things. There's better gear for my particular circumstances. And if you, if you don't adapt uh, early on, or if that's not in your mindset to know, to be flexible and to know that you are going to make changes and it's good if you make changes, uh, then that's going to set you up for a much cha- more challenging hike, right? Like if you have a heavy pack and you're like, well, this is my stuff. This is what I brought. And you don't think to yourself, like, I, I can make this better. I can, I can improve on this situation. Then you're just setting yourself up for a harder, a harder hike. And my brother was, my brother was the, the guy that had that spirit, that innovative spirit. He was constantly innovating. Yeah, and I think because he was doing the guidebook, it really forced him to be a lot more present because he was always looking at signs and stuff. Whereas me, I was just navel-gazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, because he was more present, he was able to be like, well, my my knee doesn't feel good. Ibuprofen helps, but the cause of that is the weight of my pack. So then he started thinking like, well, how can I make this thing lighter and constantly innovating? And that's actually one of the, to bring it full circle on his journey is he realized like, wow, I really like troubleshooting stuff. I really like uh, tinkering. He kept innovating on uh, a penny stove design. Mm -hmm. Penny stoves are just stoves made out of the bottoms of soda cans and he put holes in it and he could put uh, fuel in there and it'll, it'll kind of look like a stovetop with flames in a circle. And uh, I kept innovating on that. He's like, man, I really like this. I, you know, it feels, feels like I'm actually accomplishing something when I do this sort of work. And he started researching, like, you know, when you're in town, you find a library or a computer, or maybe a, a hostel would have a computer. And he researched programs where he could, use those skill sets or those traits and he ended up uh, he ended up honing in on a industrial maintenance program through a technical college had courses in like programming and robotics and all sorts of pretty cool stuff welding manufacturing and he's like you know what i think if i learn those skill sets i'll be able to apply the type of troubleshooting that i've learned on the trail to my actual career and he's gone on and uh, he got he graduated that program and he's launched himself into a successful career there and that that all came from the the inspiration of the trail and i think he he obviously felt pressure to come up with a decision so we'd have these conversations like well he's like i like planning maybe i could be like a like a, there's jobs where you plan stuff. <laughs> Maybe I could do those. <laughs> you know, we're just having these types of conversations. Uh, and I think it was great for him to have that. And I wasn't at that phase of my life yet. I knew like it was pretty set for me. Like I'm going to kind of venture for a year and then go to college. So I, I had a little bit of leeway there, but for him, the clock was ticking. And then, yeah, that was good. That was kind of one of those full circle moments of the book, right? You see him. Yeah. 
you see him, he's not really sure what he's doing and he's not very happy out on the trail either. And then throughout the progression of the trail, we see, all right, he's taking ownership of the hike. He's planning. We kind of see his mood get better and we see him come to some sort of plan that he's comfortable with for moving forward in the future. And that was for me, um, just witnessing it on the trail. It was, it was good to see, uh, especially when his spirit started to lift because then it made the hike, the day-to-day hike, <laughs> a little more fun instead of yeah. hearing someone complain. I was like, all right, you're, there's endless things to complain about on the hike. Let's just focus on, on some positive stuff here. But once his mindset flipped, and that had to do with his health as well, and um, once that flipped, that kind of changed the game for us. It's pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty good to see. Would you hike with someone if you went on the PCT or would you, from what I gather, people are finding groups and they kind of hike groups. Well, I I would start as a solo hiker, but my guess would be that I would integrate into a group, a a tramley of some sort. Okay. Um, Yeah, that would be my, my expectation. I don't. I don't expect or I wouldn't expect to hike solo the entire time. And that's, and that's not the, the point for me. Um, you know, I have heard, I have, I have talked to some people who specifically want that solo experience. And so they, they work to make sure that, that they stay in that solo experience. Um, I'm kind of open, free form to, to whatever. Yeah. What happens? However it manifests. Yeah. 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 So I'm I've got a I'm curious real quick. Okay. So what made you start this podcast? So I worked in Portland, Oregon, uh, for kind of four years in a row. I was I was working on the TV series The Librarians. Okay. And it shot up in Portland, Oregon, uh, which obviously is right on the Pacific Crest Trail, or right near the Pacific Crest Trail, and I had been talking about doing the Pacific Crest Trail for a long time, but it was always kind of in the, in the future, in the future, in the future. And I was talking to somebody, to a a friend up there and he said, oh, well, my, my cousin and her son did it. Would you be interested in talking to them? I'm like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So he set it up and, and I had a, two actually dinners with, um, with her and her son, uh, one of actually both of them with her son, actually, I think, but, you know, in the course of those conversations, we were talking both about the experience of through hiking, but we were also talking about the tips and tricks and strategies to be able to do it successfully. You know, the food, the, the camping, the equipment, the, the, this and the, that, and I had so much fun doing that, that I was kind of like, okay, so what excuse can I find to have more of these conversations with people? Because I love the tips and the strategies, but I also absolutely love the stories. And so that was kind of where the the idea started for the podcast. And I'm like, and how can I, because I'm sure that there are other people out there who are also interested in this how can I make this more than just about me and, and 
my entertainment value. Um, and that's really where the podcast kind of took off. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so great to hear these types of conversations. And it's been, you know, it's been a long time since I hiked, but when I listen to your podcast, I like takes me right back there. <laughs> when you listen to someone who like just got off the trail and they're explaining that and what it was like, I'm like, yep. Yeah. yeah I, I remember all those feelings. PCT is a little different. I like that you, um, talk to a lot of PCT hikers. Was that going to be your initial focus? Just PCT hikers or. Fo- you mean focus for the podcast? Yeah. Or, uh, no, the, the actual focus for the podcast was, Anybody who had spent time on a long trail, obviously there's the, the three major long trails in the States, but it wasn't even necessarily about that. It was about if people have spent, say, a, you know, at least a month or, or something like that, an ex- a little bit of an extended period right. of time, then, then they'll A, have the stories, but they'll also have worked through some of the, the experiences, the strategies, the, the equipment. Because it was also very much about information gathering. Yeah, you're going to be one of the most knowledgeable <laughs> first time through hikers. Like, oh yeah, I'd, like you, I've heard you and you mention like the different areas of the trail. Like, oh, but, that's yeah. a weird. That's was that a good time to get there? I was like, yeah, you know all about it. That's awesome. Hopefully, I mean, I I do not I. I totally believe that obviously you have to experience it to truly get it. But I hopefully in the moment of the experience, when I finally get on the damn trail, um, I will be able to reflect back to the stories that everybody has told me and not be so hard headed to say, Oh, it's got to be this way. It has to be done. Da, 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 da. And yeah. say, nope. Like listen to whomever. Yeah. And, and remember that there are, you know, five different ways that you could do this. Like be, be smart about it. Be open, open to possibility, open to options. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. It's good insights to have going into it. And, and it's also like, that's probably the thing for me that's, that has made me the most sad, you know, and, and talking to everybody and hearing their stories and, and all of that. I so wanted to have, those experiences, you know, obviously my experiences would be different from theirs and because everybody's unique, but to get out there and to have the experience of it. And it's funny because in one respect, I feel, even though I'm talking to everybody and I've gained a lot of information from them and, and heard a lot of wonderful stories, I'm still not one of you because I haven't been through hiking. Um, and so it's, I still feel sort of removed from it a little bit. Makes me a little sad. You're, you'll be out there and you'll, you'll earn the through hiker in your own <laughs> mind. It's all I'll your personal experiencing, but your, your through hiker identity, you're well on your way. Yeah. Yeah. And you won't make some of the dumb mistakes that, that my brother and I did. <laughs> <laughs> From your lips to yeah. <laughs> yep. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that we should? We've definitely definitely covered some territory here. No, I just I just encourage people if they're thinking about hiking the trail to do it. Um, or any of these distance trails. 
there's never going to be like a convenient time to do it unless you're like uh, a, like a younger person coming out of school or something. But even then, it's not convenient because you don't have money. <laughs> yeah. So it's just making it a priority, and you almost finding that form of obsession with it, and you really you really have to want it to get out there and stick it out. I think some people that we met were just out there to just to kind of like dip their toe in the water, but they had committed to through hiking and they just didn't, they didn't have that mental framework to get them to the end. And that was always sad to see because you, you know, people are kind of disrupting their lives to be able to do it. And then if they go out there and they only last like a week or two, it's always sad. So, uh, definitely sounds like you've covered that mental aspect of wanting to be out there. So I think you, you're, you're definitely good on that front, but anyone who's listening that has been talking about it for years or thinking about it for years, there's not a, there's never going to be a perfect opportunity. And if you're, if you're waiting till retirement, that brings a whole new set of challenges. Um, yes. So just, Disrupt your life, put everything in the storage unit or have someone live in your house and just do it. Just do it. That's my advice. (laughs) Just do it. (laughs) And if, uh, yeah, if people are interested in the book, it's available on Amazon. Uh, You can get the paperback there. You can get the ebook there or Barnes and Noble or the uh, Apple store. And if you want a signed copy, you can go to my website which is nbhankus.com and I'll I'll personally sign it for you and ship it to you. Okay. And we should give them the title of your yeah, book. Yeah, the name of the book is Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail. Um, the story of war, brotherhood, and the pursuit of truth. Kind of a, a lofty title, but felt like a lofty journey. And it's the <laughs> yeah. it's an age old an age old tale just in a uh, just wrapped up in the story of a, a through hike and there are some scenes from Iraq in there I actually like all those Iraq scenes I wrote in a single sitting during finals week one semester when I was still an undergrad and you know I was just dealing with my stuff and you know when you're in school you suppress so much just because there's these uh, such like tight deadlines and like you're always overwhelmed and you know, I had turned in some of the papers and I had a couple more tests to go and I just had this huge energetic release or creative burst. And I just wrote all those Iraq scenes that you read in a single sitting, which is, you know, maybe like, I don't know, five, 6,000 words, which is one of my bigger days of writing. <laughs> it just poured out of you. Yeah, it just poured right out of me. And then the the goal for me there was, all right, how do I add these into the story in a way that makes sense and adds to the the overall power and arc of the story? Because, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it was... Uh, I definitely feel honored when people take the time to read the book and consider my thoughts, whether or not they take them or not. I think it's important to 
put yourself in other people's shoes. Absolutely. Is the best place for people to find you is on your website or is there other places? Yeah, you can find me on social media at NB Hankus. Okay. Um, I'm sure you'll put that all in the show notes. Yep. And I'll send you a link for my website for anyone that's looking for um, a signed copy. And I'll also give you a coupon code so that they can get free shipping. So I'll compete with Jeff Bezos on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for, for reaching out and, and opening your, opening yourself up in creating the book and then, and talking about it. Yeah. I also felt some sort of, uh, responsibility for like the veteran community, I guess, even though some of them probably won't like what I say, but just to kind of be open about that process of feeling better that it's possible and it's, you know, it's, it's definitely like a, Uh, public health crisis in that community which is a sad thing to see shipping when ordering the book through his website, please use the promo code SHIPIT. That's S-H-I-P-I-T, all one word. Show notes and links for Nathan's gear can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. Special thanks to Nathan for sharing his stories from the trail and Maya Wynn for the use of the song Try Again. I hope that this conversation, these conversations, inspire you to seek out other people's stories and to share your own. Or, you know, maybe go out and create some new stories. I'll see you on the trail. <laughs>